Well, I want to begin this morning by thanking the children's ministry for the fine artwork out in the narthex. As a project for the Pentecost uh, Sunday today and for the next few weeks, we asked them to do something colorful, something that was symbolic of the Holy Spirit, and they did several art crafts out there. You couldn't have missed them as you came in. Uh, if you did, pay more attention on your way out. Uh, they did great work for us, and I'm really thankful for that. Well, for three weeks, we're going to do a short sermon series. And this Sunday, obviously, is the Feast of Pentecost. Typically, in the church's calendar, we would do Pentecost, then Trinity Sunday, and then the season after Trinity, and the colors go red, white, and then green. Um, However, this year, we're going to leave the red up for three weeks, and we're going to spend a little bit more time focusing on the Holy Spirit. Um, I think that's important, and what I'd like to do is focus on three specific topics. This week, Right now, I want to focus on the Holy Spirit coming so that we might have a personal relationship with the living God. And then next week, I want to focus on the Holy Spirit giving us power to change and transform into the character of Christ. And then the third week, I want to look at the assurance that the Holy Spirit assures us that we are in God's hand and our salvation is secure. So today, let's look at uh, the Holy Spirit giving us a relationship with the living God. This is the Feast of Pentecost, and that word Pentecost means 50th. This is the 50th day that we're observing from the day of resurrection. So Jesus was crucified on the third day he rose to life, and he spent 40 days walking around, uh, at times appearing and disappearing, doing incredible things, and witnessing to hundreds of people, and giving a personal, physical proof that he had conquered the grave. And then he ascended to, back to the Father and then asked the disciples to wait in the city until they were clothed with power from on high. Ten days they spent going up to the temple and praising God and then praying together, a group of about 120 disciples. And then on the feast, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came in great power. And that was 50 days after he rose, after Jesus rose. So my question this morning is do you believe the ancient creed, Jesus is Lord? That was a saying that was very common in the church because Caesar expected people to say Caesar is Lord, and Christians couldn't say that because while he might be the emperor, Jesus is Lord. And Christians would declare Jesus is Lord. Can you declare that and believe it? If you can, give thanks to the Holy Spirit because it is the Holy Spirit's ministry that opens your eyes to that truth. Otherwise, people just can't, they simply can't say that because they don't believe it. They don't understand it. The, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, he said, no one speaking in the Spirit will say Jesus is accursed. Likewise, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the power of the Spirit. Now, of course, someone who doesn't love God could say those words, but what he means is no one can proclaim that and profess it to be true. And this morning, if you can say, in your heart that you believe that Jesus is Lord, give thanks to the Holy Spirit because he is the one that gave you that understanding. That is his work. He is the Lord and giver of life. That's how we say it in the creed. The Holy Spirit is the giver of life. And to get to the place where you say Jesus is Lord is to have come alive. Without him, you have deadness towards God and towards his kingdom. You are dead to, this, to the kingdom of God. One of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, um, in a book called Hearing God, uses a really, I think, helpful analogy to understand this idea of being spiritually dead, but not necessarily physically dead. He defines life as the, the ability 
Life is the ability to act and respond in specific kinds of relations. So the way that something relates to another thing. And he gives an analogy of a cabbage and a kitten and a man. And he says a cabbage is fully able to relate to soil and the nutrients, the rain, the sun. And a living cabbage is different than a dead cabbage that's been picked. But if you bring a ball of yarn to either of the two, that will mean nothing to them. They will not, they are dead to a ball of yarn. They are unable to interact with a ball of yarn. However, if you put a ball of yarn in front of a kitten, that kitten has a different kind of life in it. It is able to interact with that. But don't try to do algebra with a kitten or read poetry to it. The kitten is dead to algebra, is dead to poetry, just cannot understand those things. And so there is a kind of life that is different for certain things than other things. And now when it comes to man, humans, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, is how it says it in Ephesians. We were dead. And we were alive to the world and the things of the world and the ruler of this world, and we're walking in those ways. But we were dead to God. We were separated from him. We didn't want him. We were in rebellion from him. We couldn't relate to him the way we were designed to relate. And Jesus taught this to the Pharisee Nicodemus, who came to him at night, asking questions. Teacher, we know you're from God, for we see the signs you're doing, and we, don't, we know you can't do this apart from the power of God. And then Jesus begins to question him and teach him. And at, at one point he says, unless a man is born of water and the spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. To be born of water and the spirit, that's not a reference to baptism, I don't think. That's a reference to natural birth. You know, the, 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 the woman's water breaks. You're born of water, natural birth, and then you're born of the spirit. And Nicodemus is thinking like a worldly person and says, well, how can a man enter a second time and be born? He can't. And Jesus says, you don't get it. This, this, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit, who's like the wind. You don't know where he's coming from or where he's going, but you can see his effects. The Holy Spirit must give you new birth. You must be born again. You were dead to God, and the Holy Spirit makes you alive to him. So this Pentecost sermon, this account that happened, uh, was one sermon, and 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. The community of disciples was 120, and by the end of the day, it was 3,120. What happened? How did it happen? What was it that occurred? The Feast of Pentecost was an unrepeatable one-time event, the, the, or the event, the first Pentecost. The Holy Spirit arrived, and it was as distinct and significant as the crucifixion and the resurrection. Yes, the Spirit of God will come upon a person, or will regenerate a heart, or will fill and empower someone for ministry, but the event of his, his coming was a once-off thing, and it was marked by some unique things. The sound of a mighty rushing wind, the tongues of fire, these little flames that were over the disciples in that upper room. These were, I, can't, I won't say they're impossible, that God won't do those again, but they're not typical of a person being full of the Spirit. I don't want you to raise your hand, but if any of you have ever had a physical tongue of flame above your head, I would like to know it, because I think it's very rare. It was to signify the power of this event and that, that God was making good on his promise. Jesus said, I won't leave you alone. I will, I will go and then I will send the helper, the comforter, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit to come. And these outward signs helped that to happen. They help, it helped them to see that God was doing what he promised he would do. And then it was through the spirit and the proclamation of the word that 3,000 souls were added. 
Now, those people that were hearing the sermon didn't have the rushing wind and the tongue of fire above their head, but they had the Holy Spirit pricking their hearts, so they were convicted and said, what do we do to be saved? And then they repented and believed, and they became Christians that day. I, I know that we call the book of Acts the Acts of the Apostles, and it's been that way for hundreds of years. And maybe you've heard this before, but it's not the best title for that book. And some people would say it ought to be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But that's not even quite as accurate, because even the beginning of Acts talks about what Jesus continued to do. So as cumbersome as this is, this is probably a more accurate title for the book. It is the continuing acts of Jesus through his apostles, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what the book of Acts is. Jesus' acts through his, his apostles, powered by the Holy Spirit. So I found a very helpful framework for considering this sermon that Peter gives. John Stott, one of my favorite pastors, describes it in a series of pairs. I'm going to call it two by two by two by two. There are four series of pairs that happen in Peter's pro- proclamation that leads to 3,000 people being saved. And I want to look at two events, two witnesses, two promises, and then two conditions. And let's start with the two events. These events are the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's interesting that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, the sermon was actually about Jesus. It wasn't so much about the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit opened up that conversation, but Peter didn't go on and on about who the Holy Spirit is and what his ministry is like and what he does and how to receive him and all that sort of stuff. He said, this thing that you're seeing, this is what was promised by the prophets. The prophet Joel said this, this is what's happened. And then he goes right into a whole thing about Jesus and the event of Jesus's ministry, his death, and then his resurrection. If you'll turn in the Bible to Acts, turn to Acts uh, chapter 2, and go to verse 23. In verse 23, uh, Peter preaching goes right to the heart of the issue. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty wonders, mighty works and wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So he describes the death right there, the crucifixion of Jesus. And that this thing that you're seeing is a result that then God raised him up to new life. I think it's interesting and it shows us something about God that it says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The cross was plan A. It wasn't God's fallback plan. It wasn't a, oh, that first attempt didn't work, so you know what we're going to do? We're going to do this instead. From the very beginning, God's foreknowledge was that the son would come and die on the cross to redeem a people for himself. That was plan A. It was according to the definite foreknowledge of God, his will. And at the same time, it was accomplished through the hands of sinful men. What this shows us about God is two things. One, God is absolutely in control of the events of history. He is in control all the time. He is never surprised. He is, his plan is never thwarted by evil. He is the Lord and is in control. And it shows us that he is a great redeemer, that he is able to take something so wicked and evil as the crucifixion of the son of God and turn it to good, to work redemption for people, the forgiveness of sins, a change that is of such magnitude that we will be declaring it for all eternity. 
He did that with something that was so wicked that when it happened, Satan thought he won. And all of a sudden, he realized how badly he lost because he went up against the great redeemer. So God is in control and he redeems evil for good. Now, so that's the two events, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Secondly, there are two witnesses. Verse 30 says, um, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn him with an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, so and so and so. He's speaking of King David. He's calling David a prophet. One of the witnesses is the prophets, the prophet Joel, the prophet David, and many others who were ahead of time pointing to Christ, saying that this was going to happen. They were giving witness to God's plan. And then the other is the apostles. The apostles were God's witnesses to these things. And if you look at verse 32, Peter says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. In order in the Old Testament, according to Deuteronomy 19.15, for evidence to be admitted into a trial, you couldn't just have one witness. In order for something to be attested as true, you needed two witnesses. That was the way God had established justice in the old covenant. And I think it's interesting that he fulfills that in the new in that he's saying there are two witnesses. There are the prophets and the apostles, both giving witness to Jesus. And this is so important that they had eyewitness accounts that both John and Peter later writing say this. John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard. That's how John describes his experience of being with Jesus. We have touched him. We touched him physically. They knew Jesus and with their own eyes and ears, they witnessed him coming to life through death. And then Peter, uh, just a page before this in second Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Remember, Peter, James, and John went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they saw Jesus there with Moses and Elijah and Jesus' glory before the cross. And he's saying, we saw that. We were there. We witnessed it. So eyewitnesses, firsthand accounts are so important. So there are these two witnesses. There are the prophets and there are the apostles bearing witness. And in Peter's sermon, he points both out. Next, there are the two promises. If you look at verse 38, it says, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. After Jesus talked about the witness, or Peter talked about the witness to Jesus, it says they were cut to the heart. And they said, what should we do? And Peter replied, here's what to do, and here's what you'll receive. You'll receive forgiveness for your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, forgiveness of sins is helpful in a couple of ways. One, it helps us in being able to approach God and stand before a holy God. He's made us worthy to stand before him. Otherwise, none of us would have the, the ability to even be in this room in God's presence. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to come into his presence without that forgiveness. The other place it helps us is with the enemy. 
You know, Satan, the accuser, points his finger at you and says, you are not worthy. You are a sinner. You have disobeyed God and you keep turning your back on God. And he, he's the accuser and he's pointing his finger like this. And you know what you can say because of this gift? You're right, but I'm forgiven. You were defeated on the cross. You are right. All those things you say are right. And yet I am loved by God and he has forgiven me. Therefore, get behind me, Satan. You now have that kind of power because of the forgiveness of God. That's what Jesus has promised to us. The forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, he went to heaven and that was probably disconcerting for the disciples. They were standing there staring up going, oh, what? And, you know, we're, and then the angel said, why are you staring, staring in heaven? Go wait for the gift in the city. Ten days later, the Holy Spirit comes. And now, that's the fulfillment of what Jesus said. I will be with you to the end of the age. The age that we are in right now is the age of the church. Or you could call it the age of the Holy Spirit. But we are in a season right now. It's a long season, 2,000 years and counting, where we are waiting for Christ to return. His first coming, the age of the church, where we, in the power of the Spirit, give witness to the world. And then his second coming will happen. We don't know how long it'll be. It could be today. It could be 2,000 more years. The first disciples and apostles all thought it was going to happen in their lifetime. And they were preparing for that. And it could have, but it didn't. And every generation has thought Jesus is coming back in our generation. And it's been 2,000 years and it's still counting. So on the one hand, we have to be ready. It could be today, but it could also be 2,000 more years. He is the Lord and he has fixed the time when he's going to come back. And so we just wait for him. But we don't have to be alone because the Holy Spirit is with us. He empowers us to know God, to feel his presence, to know God in our lives. He is with us. Now, the two conditions. So, so we've got two events, the death and resurrection of Jesus. We've got two witnesses, both the prophets and the apostles giving witness. And we've got two promises, the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. What are the conditions that are necessary for these things to be ours? The two conditions are repentance and baptism. It says, what should we do to be saved? They were cut to the heart. And Peter replies, repent and be baptized. Each one of you, repent and be baptized. And you'll receive forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Repentance is turning. It's turning from the old life, the old way, the dead way. It's, we, we were dead to God and we were alive to the world and we pursued the things of the world. We turn away from that and we begin to orient ourselves towards the kingdom of God and his presence in it. And we wake up every day thinking, God, you are my God. How do I serve you today? We turn from that old life and we turn to him. That's repentance. And then be baptized as an outward sign of that inward turning. We are baptized, symbolic of being buried with Christ in baptism and raised to new life. We are baptized, and now we are part of the visible faith community. We are here because we belong. We've been baptized into a body of believers. We are part of a community of faith. That is our rightful place, and we mutually encourage one another as a result of that. So those were the conditions from verse 38. Now, if you are a Christian and you think back on this, you know that at some point— even if you don't know how it happened, kind of like the wind. I don't know why the wind switches from the north to the south or whatever it does. Um, we can guess why, but we don't really know why. Um, we feel the effects, though, very much when it's blowing. And if you look back at your spiritual life, you know there was a point where the Bible, church stuff, the gospel made no sense whatsoever. And then one day it did. And you went, 
whoa, this is the best deal in the world. Why didn't I see this before? And you want what is offered. That is the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And he has made you alive. You are now, it's a new kind of life. It's like a kitten that can read poetry. You are different. And that's the work of God. And I remember distinctly what that felt like. Now, I don't know kind of how it happened, but I know that feeling of all of a sudden I could see this. I read the Bible and it made sense. It was simple. I'm a sinner. Jesus died for my sins on the cross and God is welcoming me into his family. And I turned to that and went, I, of course I want this. This is true. And then I could profess with my heart that Jesus was Lord. I believe that to be true. And it happened in my, in my case, it happened around 11th grade, somewhere in the 11th grade year. And I can't, you know, some people can put a date, time, day, all that kind of, I can't quite do that. But I can remember that thinking of, this is true. I started reading the Bible and it was like blinders were taken off. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's a powerful thing. And I like in this passage how in verse 36, Peter says, let the whole house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. God has made him Lord and Christ. Know for certain. The writer of Hebrews defines faith as being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. It is about certainty. Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That is a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. The Holy Spirit came so that we could have a relationship with Christ. Now in this room, there are probably only two groups of people. There are those who know exactly what I'm talking about. And to you, give thanks to the Holy Spirit. He is here. He is a person and he can respond to your thanks. Give him thanks for that life that he has generated in your heart. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, but you want to, and you're thinking, this makes sense, then repent, believe, trust in Christ, and come and get baptized if you're not already. The gift is for you. If you want it, just repent and receive it. It's that simple. The Holy Spirit is here, and he will minister to you. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to just turn to him now in prayer and invite you to bow your heads with me. Again, I pray, come Holy Spirit. We know you are here because... God is everywhere, and yet we see your ministry so clearly in the scriptures. I pray that you would come upon each person here, for those who know you, that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation, that you would help us to rejoice in praising you. And for anyone here who does not yet trust in Christ, would you grant the gift of new life? Open their hearts, Lord, like you did on that Pentecost day, and add to the number being saved new souls today. Give each person courage to trust you. I thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins. And I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.